Hello, my name is Mallory Jenna Robinson. Join me on A Hateful Homicide, a true crime podcast dedicated to telling the stories regarding the murders of transgender, gender non-binary, and gender diverse community members in the United States and abroad. This is A Hateful Homicide. 911, what's your emergency? Yeah. transgender woman has been shot and killed in North Baltimore, Alpha. In the U.S., trans women of color have a life expectancy of just 35 years. This happens on a daily. Another one of my friends got killed right up the street from here. These cases are true. The victims are real and their voices matter. This is A Hateful Homicide. Hi, my name is Mallory Jenner Robinson. Join me on A Hateful Homicide, a true crime and investigative journalism podcast dedicated to telling the stories regarding the murders of our transgender, gender non-binary, intersex, and two-spirit community members in the United States, and abroad. This is a hateful homicide. Nine one one, what's your emergency? An arrest in the death of a transgender woman. When we talk about the LGBT community's marginalization, trans women of color specifically experience the most violence. These cases are true. The victims are real, and their voices matter. This is a hateful homicide. The murder of Venus Extravaganza. The last room on the left. Wednesday, December 21st. 1988, New York, New York. Warning, the following episode you're about to listen to will contain evidence of misgendering, discrimination, and acts of violence towards marginalized communities. Discretion is advised. It's Wednesday, December 21st, 1988, in the city of New York, New York. It would be the home where 23-year-old trans-Latina female Venus Extravaganza would reside. And when she was discovered, strangled to death and stuffed underneath a queen-size mattress in the Duchess Hotel just four days before Christmas in 1988, it would leave the city of New York nudging for justice for the next 35 years to come. Welcome, my audience, to Season 5, Episode 2, the murder of Venus Extravaganza, the last room on the left. This case includes murder, mystery, ballroom culture, a rising star full of promise. That was Venus Extravaganza. And then in this episode, we're going to learn a little bit more about Venus's life in Jersey City, New Jersey. Her journey to New York and getting connected to the very well and highly regarded family, the Extravaganzas, a family full of black and brown people. So much so that they inspired an FX show called Pose. 
we're also going to learn a little bit more about how the show has impacted those who have portrayed characters um, based off of the extravaganza family. So we're going to learn a little bit more about like what the characters from Pose thought about portraying actual family members of the extravaganza family, which included Venus, played by the lovely Angelica Ross, who would go on to portray the character of Candy, which was inspired by Venus Extravaganza's hateful homicide back on December 21st of 1988. We're also going to learn a little bit about Jeannie Livingston. She was a documentarian. Um, she created Paris is Burning, the incredible film that came out in 1990, my birth year. And this really included a lot of behind the scenes interviews and commentaries on what it was like to be a queer and trans person of color in the city of New York around 1985 until around 1989. Venus Extravaganza was part of that documentary. And unfortunately, she was met with a hateful homicide just before the documentary was completed and released. And it was released in her honor um, again in 1990. It's so sad when we think about our community members, the violence and the trauma that we go to go through and Venus was no exception. She was a rising star filled with talents and hopes. And as we continue to go through this case, my audience, I want us to take a moment and learn a little bit about the city where Venus grew up, which was Jersey City, New Jersey. Jersey City, New Jersey, the second largest city in the state. Sitting right across the Hudson River from New York City, it has long stood as a neighbor and sometimes in the shadow of the largest city in America. Much smaller than New York City in population, and quite different economically, it has experienced a much different story than New York, with quite a different economy and quite a different population history. This is What Happened to Jersey City, New Jersey. The land that would eventually become Jersey City, New Jersey was the first settlement of what would become the state of New Jersey. Founded as Paulus Hook in the early 1600s, it would become Jersey City formally in 1838. As the railroads would begin to dominate and grow throughout America in the 19th century, so would grow Jersey City. Railroads and their terminals would be central to Jersey City's growth and development. With the establishment of nearby Ellis Island as an immigration port of entry, rail terminals would need to be built nearby to handle the millions of people passing through. And in the time before, and slightly after Ellis Island became a major port of entry, the building of the city's most famous terminals would take place. With terminals such as Pavonia in 1887, Communipaw in 1889, Exchange Place in 1892, and Hoboken in 1907, these terminals would make Jersey City a center of immigration next to Ellis Island. As millions would pour through Ellis Island, many would pour through the terminals of Jersey City. Many of those that would arrive in Jersey City would stay. The city would grow with its opportunity in and around it, especially since it was on New York City's doorstep. Despite New York City being the major economic hub of the area, Jersey City would grow on its own businesses such as Colgate and the Dixon Crucible Company. Thousands would make Jersey City a home in this era, and its population would boom on it. Even before Ellis Island, Jersey City would go from just over 6,800 in 1850 to over 82,000 by 1870. It would continue to grow at a high rate every decade until 1930, peaking at 316,715 during that census. All seemed well for the city up until this point, until it wasn't. 
Aside from the Great Depression occurring around and after this point, the industries that would keep Jersey City upright would slow and change. Immigration to Ellis Island was on the decline and the need for the rail stations in Jersey City lessened. Events such as the Great Depression, followed by World War II, followed by the Interstate Highway Act in the 1950s, combined with the vast increase in suburbanization during that period, would lead to the decline of the city's many famous rail terminals, once seen as the great symbols of prosperity in Jersey City. The 1960s would see an end to three of the famous rail terminals of Jersey City, with Communipaw, Pavonia, and Exchange Place all being closed by 1967. However, it wouldn't just be the rails that would bring Jersey City down, but also its companies that had provided many thousands of jobs. Lorillard Tobacco, which had employed thousands in Jersey City in its warehouse, would vacate Jersey City in 1956 for North Carolina. The 1980s would claim Colgate and Dixon Crucible, as both would end their manufacturing in Jersey City during that decade. From 1930 to 1980, over 80,000 people would leave Jersey City, representing over 25% of the city's population, despite being in one of the most densely populated regions of America. Despite the losses, though, it has seen somewhat of a resurgence through today. While it can't really be supported on rails and manufacturing as it was in the past, its proximity to New York City makes it an ideal location for cheaper real estate for the financial and insurance industries that covet real estate in the New York City area. And it has gone on a four decade run of population growth, reaching over 292,000 people as of 2020. So what happened? Jersey City was established on old industry, be it rails or manufacturing. Once their relevance declined, so went Jersey City. Suburbanization also was a major factor as Jersey City is in a very densely populated area close to New York City. It has, however, unlike many cities that have lost major population, been able to grow a significant amount back, with companies such as Goldman Sachs, Insurance Service Office Inc., and Goya Foods being a big part of the city's resurgence. It is possible that it does grow to even bigger than it did before, despite several companies and industries leaving it in the dust. Welcome back, my audience. And as we heard in the clipping, Jersey City, New Jersey was the birthplace for Venus Extravaganza. And she would go on to make her way over to the city of New York, New York. But before all of that, my audience, Detective Donatello Genovese is called on Christmas Day in 1988. He's called out to the Duchess Hotel. He's notified by housekeeper Marco Rivera that there's been a gruesome scene in the last room on the left, room 113. There's a body, that of a trans individual, trans-Latina female. Detective Donatello Genovese enters the room, the last room on the left. He notices a disturbed scene. Things are muffled, scuffled around. The room looks like it's in a disarray, completely, you know, shuffled. And he's trying to make sense of this scene. His partner, coroner, Matthew Callahan, also joins. And they begin to also do fingerprint analysis for this body that's been stuffed underneath a queen-size mattress. 
The body had been there for over 72 hours. Rigor mortis has set in. Lividity was that of a victim who was met with severe trauma, asphyxia, due to strangulation with a ligature. This left Detective Donatello puzzled. Who would want to murder this trans individual, this trans Latina female? He knew that a lot of our community members, as we know, are survivor sex workers. And so he knew that there was a possibility that the Duchess Hotel, which was known for housing our community members at the time in 1988, especially our survivor sex workers, it was like a safe space for them to go and bring clients and community members to like have a place to stay at night. And so Venus had been there quite a few times and it was her signature room, that last room on the left, that room 113 that she would typically go with her clients. And for the most part, Venus was okay. No harm, no foul. But when she left just four days before Christmas in 1988 to go meet a client at the Duchess Hotel, her family, the members of the extravaganza, that would be her grandfather, Hector, her mother, Angie, and sisters, Brooke and Carmen, all became concerned that Angie hadn't returned home. They filed a missing persons report two days before Venus's body was discovered on Christmas Day. They went over to the Bronx precinct to file a missing persons report on Venus. And they were told that Venus is an adult and she was free to come and go and they could go and search for her on their own, but they weren't using their resources. They all congregated at Mama Angie's house on that Christmas day, not knowing that they were gonna be met with disturbing and painful news that their loved one, Venus, was met with a hateful homicide, strangled to death with a ligature and stuffed underneath a queen-size mattress at the Duchess Hotel. But before they would get that notification, Detective Donatello Genovese and Coroner Matthew Callahan had to identify the victim. And again, of course, determine who would want to commit this heinous act against this beautiful 23-year-old trans-Latina female. The body is now taken to the New York County morgue where an autopsy can fully be completed. CSI and other crime scene analysts continue to trace the room, hoping to get some form of evidence, maybe additional fingerprints, especially on that ligature. And even underneath Venus's fingernails, was she clawing her, her perpetrator? Could she have some kind of skin layer cells underneath her nails that could help identify who would could want to commit this hateful homicide? That's what the crime scene analysts and the CSI investigators were all doing on that Christmas day. It was around 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time when the body was officially identified. Because Venus was a survivor sex worker as well as rising star in a documentary known as Paris is Burning, her fingerprints were on file. And it was confirmed that she was Venus. And her last known address and emergency contact was that of her chosen mother, Angie Extravaganza. It's around 9 p.m. A knock can be heard on a door on a third floor in a Bronx apartment building. 
the extravaganza family is all congregated, celebrating the holiday, praying that Venus will come home safely, their baby girl. Detective Donatello Junivisi is met at the door by Angie Extravaganza. He asks her what is her relation to Venus. And she confirms that she is the mother of Venus. Detective Donatello Junivisi breaks the news to the family. It's official. Venus is dead. She has been met with a hateful homicide. The family, you can hear them screaming throughout the entire building. Neighbors recall hearing Angie said they knew it. They knew she was gone. It was a mother's intuition. And, you know, my audience, as we continue to go through this case, I have to let you know that the extravaganza family was met with a series of tragedies. Angie, the mother, the matriarch of the family, the daughter of Hector, the mother of Venus, broken Carmen. She was met with a, her own fair share of tragedies. First, her father, Hector, had died of HIV and AIDS related illness back in 1885. The family had lost his patriarch as anchor, and now it was left to Mama Angie and her girls. And she always protected them and warned them about the nasty streets of New York. And she prayed that her baby girl would not be met with such a fate like others that we know, right? Like Marsha P. Johnson in season five, episode one, or Diane Delia back in episode um, episode one of season three, right? So we know that the Hudson River has had its first share of our community members. And Angie prayed that her baby girl would not be one of them. But unfortunately, all the prayers could not untruth what it was, which is Venus was gone. Angie said that she knew that when she became a part of this beautiful family, that she knew that there was going to be a chance that they all would die someday. But she thought it would be later in life that they all would be on Fire Island, sipping mimosas and laughing about the good old days. She never thought that she would begin to lose family members one by one by one and never by a hateful homicide that of her daughter 23 year old trans latina female venus extravaganza as venus was a rising star she was met along with director Jeannie livingston director Jeannie livingston uh, was an incredible canadian filmmaker who had came to america she was a film student and out of the illinois area and she was fascinated by the 1981 hateful homicide of Diane Delia. She was in her early 20s at the time and found it very interesting that a trans woman who had been featured on the cover of Avon um, was met with a hateful homicide by her best friend and her husband. She wanted to know more about the trans community in New York, which is where Diane Delia was murdered. So around 1985, four years after the hateful homicide of Diane Delia and three years before the hateful homicide of Venus Extravaganza, she goes to New York City 
Then she goes into the ballroom scene. And as we know, my audience, our ballroom scene is filled with voguing and ooh-la-la and wah-la-la. And you just get your best life every time you're there. And though, yes, it can be catty and competitive and all of those things, it's also been a safe space for a lot of us, right? Especially us community members of color, where we have been sometimes isolated by our white queer counterparts. And so this became a really like safe space for community members of the brown and black communities like Venus, like Brooke, like Carmen and Angie and Hector. So when Jeannie Leviston learned about this beautiful family known as the Extravaganzas, she had to learn about them and feature them in her documentary known as Paris is Burning. She began filming the grandfather of Venus, Hector, earlier that year. Sadly, as she was beginning to film him, um, he was, again, diagnosed the year prior with HIV, which then turned into AIDS. And so he was declining as the documentary had begun. But he highlighted his daughter, Angie, and his granddaughters, Venus, Brooke, and Carmen, and their incredible talents to the world. And so, of course, he passed away first as the documentary was beginning. But the extravaganza family was not the only one that was featured in this documentary, my audience. It was other community members of all walks of life. And they all provided their own take on what it's like to be queer and trans and people of color in New York in the 1980s. And if you have not seen a documentary, I strongly encourage you to check it out. But my audience, I do want to take a moment and hear from Jeannie Livingston herself regarding her own inspiration behind creating Paris is Burning. I'm Jenny Livingston. I'm a filmmaker, writer, director, producer. I didn't think I'd be a filmmaker. I confessed to my wonderful uncle filmmaker, Alan J. Pakula, when I was 22. I was like, I'm going to be a filmmaker. He was like, no, no, I love you so much. Please don't do that to yourself. You know, the fact that there are younger generations who are experiencing it for the first time, but also older generations who it meant something to them at a particular time in their history. Old and I'm honored that it matters. In a way, the film is mine. I made the film, but it's also I'm a conduit between viewers and a community that wasn't in film, you know. And the film preserves their wisdom and their uh, resilience and the beauty of a culture at a particular time. It, it's not a throwback to have a film festival. It's going forward because everyone knows that this is, you know, like theater, film is a medium that is best experienced in community. Welcome back, my audience. And as you could hear, director Jeannie Livingston was inspired by the life of, again, queer and trans people of color back in the 1980s, especially in the ballroom scene, that of the extravaganza family and many others alike. And so as she was filming Venus's life and Venus's loved ones, unfortunately, she too would be interviewed by Detective Donatello Genovese regarding Venus's life, right? She was in the documentary. Did Venus confide anything into Jeannie? Was Venus afraid of someone? Detective Donatello Genovese wanted to know. So he did want it to um, include director Jeannie Livingston, Angie Zapata, her sisters, Brooke and Carmen, as well as Venus's sometimes, you know, partner, uh, Rodrigo. And so he is a guy who, cis Latino male, who Venus would occasionally share space with. 
So all of these individuals were brought down on Christmas Day in 1988 after the body of Venus extravaganza, a beautiful 23-year-old trans-Latina female, was discovered strangled to death due to ligature. And her body was stuffed underneath a queen-size mattress at the Duchess Hotel in New York, New York. This case, my audience, as we continue to go through, continues to get more heartbreaking. And again, Jeannie Livingston, as you heard, was very impacted by the hateful homicide of Venus. She was impacted by the the deaths of other loved ones that she featured in the film. um, And just really wants to always continue to highlight their truth and their purpose. And so I want to also take a moment and talk a little bit more about Venus Extravaganza. Born May 22nd, 1965 to John and Olga Pegoletti. She was the fourth of fifth children and their only daughter. She had three older brothers and one younger brother. I relate to that as I have the same. And it was really interesting, my audience, when you think about Venus, this beautiful, petite, you know, just full of life spirit. She loved hair and makeup, cosmetology. And by the age of 14 in 1979, she was ready to be in, 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 empowered in her truth. She told John and um, Olga, look, mom and dad, this is my truth. I am a transgendered female. And they were not as supportive, especially John. John was not ready to accept the fact that instead of having what he considered at the time, you know, all boys, now he was now having one daughter. And Olga, her mom, was happy in a way, right? She's now getting a daughter. But was it the way that she wanted? And so the family struggled with this in terms of having Venus be herself in the household. Her brothers would pick on her at times. They talk about how they gave Venus a hard time for making her, um, for her being, you know, almost like an embarrassment to the family. And it was really heart aching when you would know that this is how Venus's childhood was made. And so by 1980, she left Jersey City, New Jersey, because she could no longer take any more of the trauma and drama of her household. And she makes those miles, those hundreds of miles to New York City, New York at the age of 15. And within just a few weeks, she meets Hector Extravaganza, this incredible cis-Latino man. And interesting fact, he was actually a really good friend of who would become her on-again, off-again partner, Rodrigo. So her grandfather, Hector, and her partner, Rodrigo, uh, would be good friends as well. And so she met Hector, and then by Hector, she would later on meet her partner, Rodrigo. But by meeting Hector, she would also go on to meet his extended family, which would include his daughter, Angie, his chosen daughter, Angie. This would also include her chosen daughters, Brooke and Carmen. So Angie's coming in as um, as a mother figure to Venus. Venus is now getting the family that she never had, right? Even though she grew up with this typical suburban household in Jersey City, New Jersey, with a mom and dad and brothers and a dog, everything that she could have asked for. It wasn't the loving household that she deserved. And unfortunately, Venus knew that it was no longer a safe space for her. And so when she was met by the extravaganzas, it was like this kismic instant connection. They all just knew that Venus belonged, um, Angie said. Her sisters, Brooke and Carmen, said that they just loved the fact that she was so feisty and she was so willing to just be herself she wanted to be a model she wanted to be an actress which she was working towards when she was in the film paris is burning 
her life was full of promise. And in 1988, at the age of 23, just before Christmas, Venus was looking forward to spending the holidays with her family like she had done for the past seven years. She would go over to Mama Angie's house and celebrate Christmas. They would drink nutmeg, even do a little caroling around Greenwich Village in the pier to liven up the the holiday loneliness for some of our community members as we know the holidays can be. So she was known to just be a giver, give back love, something that she didn't receive in her childhood. She wanted to give that to the city of New York. And because of that, she became a beloved figure in the ballroom scene. Venus would sashay and shay and shantay and win awards. She was truly up and coming. And so when she left on that Wednesday, December 21st of 1988, she said goodbye to Mama Angie. She would be back in a couple of days. They were going to finish doing some Christmas shopping. And when December 22nd came around and Venus was a no-show to go to the mall, Angie knew something was wrong. And then, of course, when Detective Donatella Genovese came knocking on the door on that Christmas day, a tradition, right, where the family would get together for seven years, that tradition was now met with a knock on the door and horrific news that Venus had been met with a hateful homicide. And as we continue to go through this case, my audience, I want to make sure that we take a moment as well and just really um, take a moment and discuss the fact that the coroner had begun to examine Venus's body. Coroner Matthew Callahan had discovered petechia hemorrhaging in the eye. There was some skin cells discovered underneath Venus's fingernails, but not enough for DNA analysis. Keep in mind, this is 1988 going into 1989. DNA was still in its infancy. So even if they were to get some form of results, it could take up to a year. So identifying Venus's killer was gonna take a lot longer than her family would like, than her loved ones would like. Was there gonna be justice served for Venus? Let's take a moment and learn a little bit more about their baby girl, Hector's granddaughter, Angie's daughter, Venus Extravaganza. Some of them say that we're sick, we're crazy, and some of them think that we are the most gorgeous, special things on earth. I would like to be a spoiled, rich white girl. <laughs> they get what they want whenever they want it, and they don't have to really struggle with finances and nice things and nice clothes, and they don't have to have that as a problem. I don't feel that there's anything mannish about me except maybe what I might have between me down there. <laughs> which is my little personal thing, so I guess that's why I want my sex change to make myself complete. I was about 13, 14 years old, and I used to do it behind my family's back, just dressing up, till finally they caught on with it, and I didn't want to embarrass them, so that's when I moved away. I moved to New York, and I continued doing it. They saw me 
and they all liked me, all the rest of the extravaganzas. And they decided, well, if you want to become an extravaganza, you have to walk a ball first, and if you snatch a trophy, then you become the extravaganza. That's how it's supposed to work with any everyone. But uh, like that, it wasn't with me. I just became an extravaganza. Hector Extravaganza, he's the one who started the house. He was the first gay man I ever met. The first time he took me to the village, which was my birthday, I had just turned 15 years old. And he threw a party for me. Out there, he bought me a cake. I met a lot of drag queens, transvestites, that I didn't believe were because they were so beautiful. And that kind of sunk into my head. And I guess that's why it kind of made me want to even do it more. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. What is wrong with you, Pedro? Are you going through it? You're going through some kind of psychological change in your life? She went back to be a man. Oh, you went back to being a man. Touch this skin, darling. Touch this skin, honey. Touch all of this skin, okay? You just can't take it. You're just an overgrown orangutan. The thing that helped me make my most money through the escort service is being that I'm so little, I'm so petite, I'm tiny, um, the blonde hair and the light skin, the green eyes and the little features. And the client's hands will be bigger than my hands while they would hold my hand or something. You know, they like feeling that they were something perfect and little and not someone that's bigger than them because I guess that kind of disturbs them. Most all the drag queens that are involved in the ball, they 90% of them are hustlers. I guess that's how they make their money, to go to the balls and get whatever they need and stuff. I used to hustle in New York to make my money. I was with a guy and he was playing with my titties till he touched me down there. He felt it and he seen it and he like totally flipped out. He said, you fucking faggot. You're a freak. You're a victim of AIDS and you're trying to give me AIDS. What are you, crazy? You're a homo. I should kill you. You know, stuff like that. And like, I was really terrified. So I just jumped out the window. I grabbed my bag and just jumped out the window. But see, now I don't like to hustle anymore. I don't. And I'm afraid of what's going on, the AIDS. And I don't want to catch it. Like later on this evening, I'm supposed to meet someone, a friend of mine, a very good old friend of mine. He's a young, very good, attractive, handsome young man. And um, he's taking me out to dinner later on this evening or for cocktails after midnight. I know he'll give me some money just for me to maybe buy a pair of shoes and a nice dress so that the next time he sees me, He'll see me looking more and more beautiful the way he wants to see me. But I don't have to go to bed with them or anything like that. At times they do expect sexual favors, but that is between myself and them, so I do not wish to further speak about that, if they do. But at most times, 99% of the time, they don't. 95% of the time, they don't. But I feel like... Oh, you should have seen me. I have history. If you're married, a woman, 
in the suburbs, a regular woman is married to her husband, and she wants him to buy her a washer and dryer set. In order for him to buy that, I'm sure she'd have to go to bed with him anyway to give him what he wants for her to get what she wants. So, in the long run, it all ends up the same way. I want a car. I want to be with the man I love. I want a nice home away from New York, up the peak skills, or maybe in Florida, somewhere far where no one knows me. I want my sex change. I want to get married in church in white. I want to be a complete woman. And I want to be a professional model behind cameras in a high fashion world. I want this. This is what I want. And I'm going to go for it. to tell her Venus you take too many chances you're too wild with people in the streets something is going to happen to you but that was Venus she always took a chance she always went into a stranger's cars she always did what she wanted to get what she wanted I had a booking for a Christmas show at Sally's and the DTs came to me with a picture of her murdered and they were about to cremate her because nobody had came to um, verify the body and I was the one that had to give all this information down to her family. Actually, they found her dead after four days, strangled under a bed in a sleazy hotel in New York City. I'm hungry. We used to get dressed together, call each other, and say what we were going to wear. And, you know, she was like my right hand. As far as I'm concerned, I miss her. Every time I go anywhere, I miss her. That was my main... the main daughter of my house, in other words. But that's part of life as far as being a transsexual in New York City and surviving. Welcome back, my audience. And as you could hear, Venus was a lover and a fighter, feisty. She was determined and driven. And she was like so many of us, trying to make her way through, the, through this world. She wanted love. She wanted to have a home. She wanted a family. She wanted the childhood she never had. And unfortunately, all of that was snuffed out on Wednesday, December 21st of 1988 at the Duchess Hotel in New York, New York, when this beautiful 23-year-old trans-Latina female was found strangled to death. No reason, no rationale. Her loved ones are now left with the devastating news. Mama Angie goes to Jersey City, New Jersey, and she notifies John and Olga that Venus has been met with a hateful homicide, that her body was discovered, stuffed underneath a queen-size mattress on the last room on the left in room 113. John and Olga, who knew who their daughter became, in her truth, in her journey, empowered as a proud trans-Latina woman, they told Angie to keep Venus's remains, that they did not and would not acknowledge the remains or bury her. 
Still, it was left on. Her true family. The extravaganzas. They connected with coroner Matthew Callahan to set up the arrangements. And because, again, my audience, keep in mind that like so many of us, financial hardships are real. They could not afford proper burial and or life insurance policies. That was non-existent. So Venus, her remains were cremated. The coroner did, you know, collect some tissues and some additional DNA for future evidence to be analyzed as, you know, technology would advance. But it would go years and years and years. And Mama Angie and her sisters, Brooke and Carmen, and her friend, Victoria, and even Rodrigo, her on and off again paramour, would all ask Detective Genovese, what are you doing? Are you investigating? And Detective Genovese would say, there's no new leads. Bring us something. Give us a lead. They had interviewed, remember, Jenny Livingston, all her loved ones. As far as they knew, Venus was beloved. Who would want to hurt the baby girl? Even some of the clients they were able to track down. And according to Detective Genovese, each and every one of them had an alibi. It was the Christmas holidays. Some were getting ready to travel. Some were already out of town. So each of these potential persons of interest, each were ruled out one by one. So by 1994, six years after the hateful homicide of Venus Extravaganza, her mother, Angie Extravaganza, talked about how there had been no new leads, no justice, and they even had raised an award of $10,000 for anyone to say something. It was plaguing the Extravaganza family. Angie was beside and she could not understand who would do this. And she made that promise to Venus back on January 5th of 1989 when they scattered her ashes out there in one of her favorite spots, as you saw on the Hudson River. It was where she would go in vogue and pose and feel safe. And it's where that they scattered her ashes back on that January 5th of 1989, about a week and a half after her hateful homicide. And on that pier, Angie vowed to never give up to always seek for the truth in who committed this hateful homicide and who left that beautiful 23-year-old trans-Latina female slumped underneath the queen-size mattress in the last room on the left in the Duchess Hotel. There was some speculation in my audience that maybe it was personnel of the Duchess Hotel. There was this local janitor, and he occasionally did position the girls, especially those of the trans experience. And one girl testified that this janitor got enraged when she declined his proposition. He grabbed her by the throat and told her that you would ultimately comply. She felt helpless. Who would believe her? She's a trans woman and a trans woman of color. And she even confided in the extravaganza family that maybe that janitor was someone who could have committed the hateful homicide of Venus. But according to Detective Donatello Genovese, they interviewed him 
and he wasn't in, in, in New York at the time. Apparently he too had went away on holiday vacation. But when Detective Donatello Genovese did a little further investigation into this janitor's alibi, they did discover that he did actually come back to New York on December 21st. He had left on the 19th, but they were able to determine that he had came back according to an eyewitness. One of his neighbors saw him on the 21st. Did he come back? See Venus? Maybe her client left? This question was posed. And according to him, he said that he came back because he forgot his son's Christmas presents. And he was believed. That's all there is to it. There isn't any more. So by 1994, Angie Extravaganza had raised enough money through the ballroom scene by winning tons of trophies in Venus's name. And they wanted someone to speak up before it was too late. And year after year, decade after decade, there was no justice. But my audience, I want to take a moment and learn a little bit more about Venus's grandfather, the patriarch of the extravaganza family, Hector. He was a feisty, like his granddaughter Venus and like his daughter Angie, a feisty, proud, cisgender Latino man who was known in the ballroom scene. He was ferocious and proud and he had an incredible eye for fashion and a crush on Prince, the singer, even emulating him at times. Let's take a moment and learn a little bit about Grandfather Hector Extravaganza. I'm a humble person, I'm kind, I'm lovable, I'm sweet, I'm moist. I'm open to everything, you know, so it's not like there's nothing to hide. What you see is what you get. I don't think he's legendary for a specific category. He was legendary because he was Hector Extravaganza. He was legendary for his longevity. Uh, he's been a part of the housing ball community since 1982. His name carried weight. Hector was a leader in the housing ball community. He was a part of every committee possible and anything LGBT related. He's one of the people that said something got to give with this AIDS thing that's happening in, in our community in the ballroom scene. There was a collective of ballroom uh, people who were like, we, we gotta do something. And so that's how Latex was born. Hello, you're watching The Luna Show, and I'm here with my gay father and somebody who's an icon in the house and ball saying Hector Extravaganza Power. Hi. <laughs> Hi, Daddy. Hey, Bobby. Hector and I met um, in the 90s. Hector was a very kind person. And he gave so much of himself, not only as an artist, you know, for his creativity, um, but also, you know, uh, of himself, he just gave. You like something, he'll take it off and give it to you. Like, literally, he would do that. I like your bag, oh, you like it? Here, let me just take my stuff out. Like, he's done that. He was very vibrant and very lovely and magnanimous and over the years I just fell in love. I remember watching a panel of people in the house and ball community 
um, reflecting on Hector's life. And they're telling stories, and one of them had mentioned how Hector had helped him pay his rent one, one day, one month. Another person said, oh yeah, me too. And the other two followed, said, yeah, me too. And they all had a moment where they all realized that Hector helped each of them pay their rent. I miss Hector. This is my first latex without him, so it's difficult because I usually will, you know, talk to him about, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? Is this trophy cute? He's the one that would make me think outside the box. He would say, maybe you should do this instead of that because this sounds better to the community. He contributed so much, not just to the house and ball community, but to New York City and the country through his leadership, through his connections with balls all over the country. Any last thoughts, anything you want to tell the world? You get one life, you know, you get a lot of balls, a lot of kids, a lot of men, a lot of women, 10,001 condoms, maybe how many of you use it, I don't know, but nevertheless, you have one life. Don't take it for granted. Don't live a happy-go-lucky life. Welcome back, my audience. And like Hector said, what you see is what you get. And he was a true visionary and leader. And he loved his baby girl. He loved his granddaughter, Venus. And when, again, when Jeannie Livingston began to feature the family back in 1985, he again said, please, focus on my daughter, Angie. Focus on my granddaughters, Venus, Brooke, and Carmen. But Hector was so inspiring, so much to the fact that there was a show created about his family. The show came back out around circa 2015. It was released on the network FX, known as Pose. This show featured incredible actors like Billy Porter, MJ Rodriguez, India Moore, Dominique Jackson, Angelica Ross. The list goes on and on. All of these community members um, and actors would go on to portray uh, members of the extravaganza family, as well as other members of the ballroom scene. And they all talk about how they were so um, inspired by Hector's sense of fashion, his sense of dance and nuance, and his ability to just be able to connect with the community. They they loved his, his spirit and his ability to just tell it how it is. And so my audience, I want to take a moment and hear from a few of those, um, those incredible stars, um, India Moore and Dominique Jackson, on their fondness of Hector Extravaganza and what it meant to them um, to portray him and his loved ones in the show, Pose. Shout out to um, Grandfather Extravaganza, Hector. Grandfather Hector Extravaganza, he um, was such a large part of why Pose was so incredible and um, why the ballroom scene shines so bright. And um, I don't know, I'm just thinking about him as I'm walking through this carpet and I'm just so happy that he was able to see something like Pose come alive um, while he was here. Hector's the one that took me to Continental, helped me with a lot of things. I was not an extravaganza, I was just his daughter. And he was with me through all of, uh, I had two surgeries, and he was picked me up every morning and was there at my bedside, made sure I was okay, even when I was afraid to let anyone else know I was going through that. Uh, he would sit in my living room and we would talk and laugh, and he would always tell me how honored he was to know that our community was finally being recognized just this year alone. You know, he was just so amazed, and I feel like he understands that his legacy 
his, his legacy will continue in all of us, his children, and in all of those that he has inspired. Um, but I, I will miss him dearly. Welcome back, my audience. As you could hear, Grandfather Hector and all of the extravaganzas were beloved and truly an inspiration. Still being talked about to this day, many years later. And so my audience, you know, Detective Donatella Genovese would ultimately retire from the New York Police Department in 2002. And this was about 14 years after the hateful homicide. He was interviewed once and asked what was one of his biggest regrets in his career. And he did mention that he wished he would have had more justice for the Venus extravaganza case and even a little bit more understanding to the community. He did acknowledge the fact that law enforcement did not do all they could to investigate. Coroner Matthew Callahan did mention that they did run some more DNA analysis by this time when he retired in 2016. He said that, you know, it had been at that time almost 30 years since Venus's hateful homicide. And he continued over those years to run evidence, hopefully that maybe like that little skin cells that was found underneath her nails, like just maybe a little bit of that would give some kind of trace evidence. But unfortunately, it never came to be. And he all, he retired saying that he, you know, wished that that case could have been solved. But recently, there was a case known as the Golden State Killer. And that case produced results where you can do genetic genealogy from DNA. And so who knows my audience? There could be a chance down the line that we could get some information from that little DNA. But I do want to take a moment as well. And let's hear from some of our additional post stars, such as MJ Rodriguez, on why the extravaganza family was so important to them. We get to show a lot of empathy to the people that are not here today and tell their stories. Let's talk about Hector Chavadanza. I know. This show is an homage to Hector and everyone else who has moved along. Hector was a father to a lot of people and a grandfather to a lot more. He always called me granddaughter. I'm hungry, extravaganza follow, okay? Remember. The first time that I ever met Grandfather Hector Extravaganza, we were on set, and I was like, it's such an honor to meet you. And he opened his arms and said, grandson. And I, I didn't have a, a relationship with my grandparents, so that obviously meant the world to me. And so I started calling him Abuelo. He supported the community here at Pose. He was a consultant and we could call him for anything. I remember him calling me one day and saying, listen, I just wanted to make sure you're okay. If you ever need advice, if you ever just need to vent or you wanna, you know, you just need to get something off your chest, you can call me for that too. They can't, they just can't. This was someone who, as a gay Puerto Rican, was diagnosed with HIV in 1982. He lived till his early 60s. And that is amazing. I didn't know what to do. I was kind of in a blank space when I found out that he passed away. He was a real warrior for our community. The community helped me, so I'm helping others, you know, the same way the community helped me. Without the community, I'm, I'm personally nobody. We all we have, and we all we had. You know, we're just growing more stronger with one another. After the season finale aired, he called me and he started to cry. He was like, I just wanted to tell you, 
I am so proud of this show and I cannot believe that I lived long enough to see this show exist. But this is for you, Hector. I love you. Welcome back, my audience. And as you can hear, MJ Rodriguez spoke highly of grandfather Hector Extravaganza, as well as the entire Extravaganza family. They really made an impact on pop culture, and we thank them still to this day. I also want to take a moment, my audience, and talk a little bit about Venus's older sisters, Brooke and Carmen. You know, we've talked about the baby girl. We've talked about Mama Angie, right? We've talked about Hector. We really highlighted our beautiful family members known as the extravaganza and their incredible contribution to pop culture and queer culture. But also, what about Brooke and Carmen? There's, they were the big sisters to Venus. And Brooke and Carmen was very protective of her. They both knew the dangers of being a trans woman, a black and brown trans woman, in New York City during the 1980s. They talk about things like the crack epidemic, violence against women, intimate partner violence, so much more. And my audience, through all of that, they still continue to rise and shine. These sisters would continue to say Venus's name even after she passed. And in 1990, when Paris is Burning was released, and was met with a lot of rewards. After that, they would go up and be um, interviewed regarding their sister's life and her journey. And they would always talk about how they looked up to her, even though she was the younger sister, on how she knew who she was. She was so self-sufficient. She came from Jersey City, New Jersey, with no money to her name at the age of 15. They were inspired by that. And they respected her. And when she was met with that hateful homicide on Wednesday, December 21st of 1988, at just the age of 23, found strangled to death, a rope tied around her neck, petechia hemorrhaging in the eye. And still to this day, 35 years later, no one has been charged. But my audience, let's learn a little bit more about Venus's sisters, Brooke and Carmen. (laughs) In um, 84, I've had a nose reconstructed job. I've had my cheekbones risen. I've had a chin implant and breast implant. Yes, tell them like it is. The most important factor in my life that has been completed recently is that I've had a transsexualism operation. That means I've had a sex change. I'm no longer a man. I am a woman. I feel great. (laughs) I'm very happy. And I feel like the part of my life that was a secret is now closed. I can close the closet door. There are no more skeletons in there. And I'm as free as the wind that's blowing out on this beach. (laughs) Except that voice is still there. Welcome back, my audience. 
And as you can hear, those two sisters are quite interesting, full of life and joy. And they miss their baby girl. Unfortunately, um, the extravaganza family was met with more tragedies. Um, Carmen extravaganza passed away. And so she's now with her sister Venus. Mama Angie is, you know, still coping with all of the loss, but she takes it day by day. My audience, as we prepare to conclude this case, if you know of anything, if you have heard of anything regarding the hateful homicide of Venus Extravaganza, please, please reach out. Please say something. This case has been remaining unsolved for almost 35 years. This beautiful 23-year-old trans-Latina female who was full of life, who was looking forward to going shopping with her mother for her family members to get them Christmas presents. She loved drinking eggnog with her, with her family on Christmas Day. And all of that was snuffed out on December 21st, that Wednesday, when her body was discovered around 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at the Duchess Inn Hotel. Silence is violence, and we must say her name. Give her justice, give her peace, and please reach out to the New York hotline. The State Police Hate Crimes Task Force works to prevent and investigate hate crimes and bias-motivated incidents in New York State. The task force includes our partners at the State Division of Human Rights and the Division of Criminal Justice Services. Together, we monitor reports of hate crimes and violations of human rights law. A hate or bias-motivated crime or incident occurs when the victim is targeted because of their race, color, national origin, ancestry, gender, religion, age, disability, or sexual orientation. New Yorkers are also protected against discrimination by the human rights law. Places like restaurants, stores, and government agencies cannot deny you service based on a protected characteristic like race or religion. If you are a victim or a witness to a hate or bias-motivated incident in your community, tell us what happened. You can submit your complaint by calling the Hate Crimes Tip Line at 1-888-392-3644 or by texting HATE to 81336. You can also use the new online form to report hate or bias-motivated crimes and incidents. You can access the form through the Hate Crimes Task Force webpage. The information you submit will be kept in confidence. The State Police, serving and protecting all New Yorkers since 1917. Welcome back, my audience. Again, please contact the New York State Task Force. Do what you can. That reward money is still there. Speak up. Say something. Oh, my audience. This has been Season 5, Episode 2, The Murder of Venus Extravaganza, The Last Room on the Left. And to my beautiful Venus Extravaganza, born May 22nd, 1965, and resting on since December 21st, 1988. We remember you yesterday, today, tomorrow, forever, and always. Thank you so much, my audience, for tuning in 
to this episode of A Hateful Homicide, please feel free to follow us on every social media platform. My name is Mallory Jenna Robinson, your host. And again, thank you for your continued support. And I hope to see you um, within the next few weeks. We'll be getting ready to introduce season five, episode three the murder of Dominique Newborn. So stay tuned for that one. I'm coming down the pipeline very soon. I thank you again from me to you. Enjoy the rest of your day. And until next time, take care.